0: Good afternoon and welcome to Bible Quest, the New York City, New Jersey, Philly edition. We are happy to entertain your comments. This is an interactive Bible study. And if you'd like to participate, you can send us your comments and questions by means of the Facebook page. If you are watching this live streamed on the Facebook page, you just use the comments section and our uh, webcast engineer, Noah Andrews, will get those comments and questions to us you are at the BibleQuest.org page. You will see a QA and a link, and you can use that. Send us comments and questions during our webcast today. I'm Jeff Smelser, and with me is Joe Works. Joe, you're all as usual in Fairlawn, New Jersey.
1: I am, Jeff. Good to see you this afternoon, and uh, uh, your voice sounds a little raspy. I'm sorry that uh, sounds like
0: you're having some voice uh, uh, difficulties, but good to to see you again this morning. I hope it's just allergies. I'm in Florida, and about two days after we got here, this started. And I hope it's just something I'm allergic to here in Florida. We're enjoying our stay here, but we'll be heading back north late tonight. And if it all clears up by tomorrow morning, then I'll know it was just uh, allergies. Um, But I am Jeff Smelser, and I am usually in Exton, Pennsylvania. And today I am in Temple Terrace, Florida. And we're going to have a guest joining us in a few minutes to talk about salvation and some popular ideas about salvation. Edwin Crozier, uh, who preaches in the Tampa, Florida area, will be joining us. But as usual, we like to begin this webcast with a question, and the question is, what you got, Joe? So, Joe, what you got today? What
1: I have is in Genesis 11. So if you want to open your Bible there
0: with that uh, passage. I'm doing that right now as we speak. What's in Genesis 11? Uh,
1: uh, well, um, this is something he's pointed out to me uh, several years ago, and uh, maybe I'm the last person that ever saw it, but just in case I'm not, I thought I would just share this with others. Um, the story that's told in Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9 of the Tower of Babel, the scattering of the people, uh, not only is it give us the information about where different languages came from. seems to be uh, an, ex, uh, an expansion upon the statement at the end of 1032, of uh, where the nations, uh, how they were divided over all the earth uh, as well. But also uh, it's written in a poetic form. Uh, I just wanted to point that out. And uh, sometimes people will see these, uh, if I'm pronouncing it right, uh, chiasm or chiasm, uh, what's the correct pronunciation for that? Chasm? I don't think it's
0: chasm. No, okay. I don't <laughs> uh, so anyway, it's the, the idea of... You're not talking about the big gaping... Uh, you're not talking like the Grand Canyon. No, I'm talking about a, a form
1: of, of poetry, uh, writing style, literature style, that uh, begins with a thought and then it'll go to a second thought And then it'll come back to the first thought. And so it's written in the sense of ABA, or you can have something like ABCBA. And I I suppose they're almost never-ending, depending on how creative someone wanted to be with this. And so it appears to me uh, that Genesis 11 fits into that category. I'm a little bit hesitant to always see uh, these chiasms in passages. Sometimes people find them in places that I'm not so sure that that's really what the intention was. But this one seems pretty strong in my mind, so I thought I'd share it. So, so I don't see it. Show it to me. Okay. So, uh, in verse one, you have uh, it says, "Now the whole earth." And then, if you look at the end of verse nine, it says, uh, "Scatter them, brought over all the." Uh, the face of all the earth. So you have the whole earth and all the earth. That that would be the the A of that. Okay. And then in verse one, now the whole earth had one language, and so language. And then in verse nine, therefore its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language. And then and and those you know if that's all there was, I might think, oh well, that's just a coincidence, or that's just the way that it was written, or something. But you drop down to verse 4, and, uh, well, let me just read through it, maybe. Uh, Verse 2, it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks, bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose uh, whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. And if you drop down to verse 7, or... uh, Um, I'm sorry. Now I've lost it. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, so in, uh, verse, um, uh, seven have the phrase, God saying, come, let us go down. And so that would match with the verse. Come let us. us. And then in verse five, the middle part of verse five, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that would match the city and the tower in verse four so if if that's the case, and, and some have even found uh, you know as many I guess as uh, seven or eight different parts of this, I'm not convinced on all of them, but those words are just so similar the whole earth, one language, come let us, city and tower, city and tower, come let us language all the earth and if you if you see that as a as a chiasm, then the central point of that it would be a b c d and then the e would be the turning point and that would be in verse five the lord
0: came down Uh, so that's that's kind of talking about literary structure and sometimes in the literary structure we get a hint as to what the focus is or what's being highlighted exactly let me ask you this Uh if i didn't know what a chiasm is, or if I didn't know what a chasm was, either one. <laughs> I just didn't know anything. Nonetheless, I'm reading this story. What what, what point am I supposed to get out of the story of the Tower of Babel? Just from a big picture point of view, you got the Bible, you got creation, you got sin, and then we're going to work our way to Jesus. But what's the point of the story of the Tower of Babel? I got the point that before this, everybody spoke one language, and after this, everybody spoke a bunch of different languages. Is it just kind of a random story, just so that we know where languages came from? What's the point of this story? Why is well, it in-
1: Yeah, and I and I think that's why th- that having that central point there, whether a person sees this as uh, as the poetic uh, point or not, uh, having the Lord come down. As man is in this action of rebellion, uh, the Lord is going to deal with that um, uh, and (laughs) is not going to accomplish his will beyond uh, what God uh, has in store. Uh, God had told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth back in Genesis 9. They said, no, we're not going to. God says, yes, you are. Uh, And so that's how that ends up happening. In my mind, the bigger point to uh, to this is not so much just this story, but its placement in Genesis. It comes right before Genesis 12, that Genesis 11 does. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, in Genesis 11, God has told them previously, you go and you fill the earth. You go. They said no, and so they were cursed. In Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, you go. He says, yes, Lord, and he's blessed. To me, Genesis 11 and 12 ought to be studied together to, to see that contrast of what happens when you submit to God's will versus what happens when you
0: uh, rebel against it. So in a sense, Genesis chapter 11 is an early example of something that man as a society has been doing all through the ages, and that is trying to go his own way and ignore what God's plan is. Yeah. Uh, let us make a name for ourselves. Uh, pride is the root of it. We have a viewer, John Duvall. It sounds like he knows a little bit either about chasms or chiasms, one of the two. He tells us that chiastic structure or chiastic pattern is a literary technique and a narrative motif and in narrative motifs and other textual passages. See, Joe, that's what you should have done. You should have used that word motif there. I think that really makes it. It's, it's a literary technique and narrative motif. It's in narrative motifs and other textual passages. He says an example of chiastic structure would be two ideas, A and B together with variants A prime and B prime being presented as A, B, B prime, A prime. That would be a fairly simple one, I guess, because you only have two and then two instead of five or something. All right. right. Very good. Thank you for that, Joe. It's an interesting story there in Genesis chapter 11. Uh let's bring on our guest. We've got joining us today uh Edwin Crozier. Good good man, good teacher, good Bible student. Um interestingly, Edwin Crozier started out with one understanding as a young man, as a young person, one understanding of salvation and ended up coming to see something else as he studied the scriptures. Edwin Crozier, welcome to Bible Quest. Thank you for joining us today. And here he comes.
2: Hello. can you hear me?
0: Yeah, it takes a little while here in Florida to get there, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. You can get there from here in Florida. No. Edwin, All right. I don't, there I we see, go. We see you
2: now. All right. Great. I'm. I'm sorry you have to see me now, but it kept prompting me. You have to start the video. I, I was trying to get by without that, just for the benefit of your watchers. Well, there's probably some
1: people that didn't wouldn't even realize what you look like, or you know, they of you and and now they 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 really can put a face with what they've heard about you
0: that's called an inside joke my wife my wife actually met edwin for the first time just a couple hours ago and he looked totally different than she expected him to look in every single way she did have the gender right she did that's
2: awesome that's awesome (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, it's, it's good to have you here. We want to talk a little bit about salvation. You know, when, you start, when you just start thinking about what's important, that's what's important. I mean, the Bible is the story of God making a way for man to be saved, to be reconciled to God in spite of man's sin. And yet, if you talk to religious people, there are a lot of different ideas about what, what is necessary for me to do or if I have to do anything to be saved. And maybe one of the most popular ideas is that that is taught in many Baptist churches, maybe most Baptist churches, and what is generally taught in evangelical churches, and that is basically what? Edwin, you, I think you grew up as a Baptist, right?
2: Yeah, until I was a teenager, I was brought up in the Baptist denomination, Southern Baptist. And, you know, what I was taught as I was being brought up was, if you believe Say a sinner's prayer, ask Jesus into your heart to become your personal Savior, and then you're saved. And there were some, depending on the church, there was the view of once saved, always saved, though that wasn't necessarily universally held. Mm-hmm. Folks that I met as I was being brought up there, but a lot of folks have that concept. And that, that concept came out in either two, one of two ways, either one, once you were saved, you were just always going to be saved no matter what and it didn't matter what you did or there was the other side which most of my family typically believed and that was is that if you were really saved you were going to stick with it if you fell away that demonstrated you weren't saved to begin with but there
0: were those concepts regarding salvation so one of the things that is always puzzling to many people is the the Bible places such an emphasis, and I think that's a fair statement. If you guys don't think that's a fair statement, or if some of our viewers don't think this is a fair statement, you can let me know. But here's the statement. The Bible places such an emphasis on baptism – as the point at which we come into Christ. We're baptized into Christ in Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. We're baptized into his death. Uh, as many of you, as have, put on, as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ in Galatians 3.27. And we can multiply the passages that talk about this. And yet, in the popular notion in the religious world, certainly in evangelicalism in most Baptist churches, it's almost like that's anathema to say that baptism is the point at which you're saved. That, that is thought of as contrary to the gospel. Why? I'm not
2: 100% sure why that has happened. One of the things that amazes me in today's modern religious world is how baptism has become such a dividing line. It, it shocks me because, as you pointed out, the Bible seems to be so clear. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He that believes and is baptized will be saved. Uh, Baptism now saves you. So many passages bring that up. If I were to guess, and, and I didn't get to sit down when I was in the Baptist church with people and find out exactly why anybody got there or why that's what was said, but if I were to guess why that is so anathema, is because in the Protestant Reformation, in reaction to Catholicism, Mm -hmm. there was a big concern that we would teach that man saves himself. And in the, what often happens, whenever some error is being taught, in order to respond to that error, instead of coming to the, the truth, the balanced truth, what often happens is an overreaction to the other side. And because Catholicism taught that we had to work our way out of our uh, venial sins, the Reformation taught in reaction to that, there is absolutely nothing that I ever do that's involved in salvation whatsoever, period. And if I do anything, then I'm taking glory away from God. And so if you say that baptism is a part of it, then I'm doing something, and now I'm taking glory away from God. And, And I think that's just an overreaction to somebody else's overreaction, let's bring it back to the middle ground, the balanced ground that the Bible has for us that's,
1: that's, uh,
0: go ahead Joe you trying to say something
1: well I, I was just say that that seems to fit the other aspects of the doctrine of maybe even once saved always saved and so forth. We have nothing to do with our salvation uh, would would almost be that 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 pendulum swing then Uh, if we have nothing to do with being saved, we have nothing to do with staying saved. Um, you know, God controls it all. That, that seems to almost fit that, that pendulum swing that you're
0: describing. So here's, here's my question. If, if indeed we can't, there can't be anything that we have to do or else that takes away the glory from God. It's, it's, we're, we're saving ourselves. That would seem to be saying salvation is unconditional. It's not conditioned upon any response on my part. but at, at the grassroots level in evangelicalism, don't they believe there is some condition required for somebody to be saved?
2: That's going to depend on who you're talking to. Someone who would find themselves in that in that Protestant Reformation mold of being a strong, Five point Calvinist is actually going to say there are no conditions. And the reason there are no conditions is because God is going to choose you before time to be one of the saved. And anything you do, it's because God Himself predestined you to do it. So there's no condition. Anything that you do that looks like a condition, God predestined that to happen because He chose you. On the other hand, you have those who As a friend of mine says, they only believe in the tips of the tulip, the total inherited depravity and the perseverance of the saints. Or you have those that are really more Armenian, even while they are claiming to be Calvinists, who believe that there are some conditions. Usually, though, what they'll point out is that the only condition is faith. So, for instance, Charles Stanley, I'm not sure if he would call himself a Calvinist, an Armenian, or how he would define himself. But in his book, Eternal Security, he makes the case that there is only one condition and that's one moment of faith. And once you have had that one moment of faith, then you're saved no matter what. And for him, salvation is like a tattoo. I mean, he, he just flat says this salvation is like a tattoo. The receiving of it and the keeping of it are two different things. Once you've got it, you can't get rid of it. And that, but what he has is a condition and that condition is a moment of faith.
0: All right. <laughs> So we've got some people who would be like your reformed churches, and they're willing to say there is no condition. Salvation is just an arbitrary choice made by a sovereign God, and he's going to save some, and he's going to condemn others, and it's just up to him.
2: Well, look, if I can interrupt, just to they, – they would get upset if you said arbitrary choice. Okay. They'll just say that God makes his choice, but it's in his mind, and we don't know the basis.
0: So in his mind, it's not arbitrary. Yeah. But, but he He's just that way to us. <laughs> okay. All right, but that's fair. That's fair. If they believe in God's mind, he may have some kind of reason. But again, if it's a reason that has anything to do with my response, then that would destroy their doctrine.
2: That's right. Whatever his reason is, though they will claim it's not arbitrary, it's not based on how we responded.
0: But then there are these other people in evangelicalism, like you talk about Charles Stanley, who believe we do have to do something, but it's just a one-time thing. You mentioned the sinner's prayer earlier. People will say, you just have to say the sinner's prayer. What's the sinner's prayer? Is the sinner's prayer in the Bible? What's the sinner's prayer?
2: You can find the sinner's prayer at the back of almost any evangelical book that talks about salvation. The one place you can't find it is anywhere in the New Testament or the entire Bible. And that's, that, to me, is a really important thing. The sinner's prayer is basically some form of expressing to God that I am a sinner and I need him. And I believe that Jesus is the Christ who died for my sins and I'm inviting him into my life. It can take many different forms, but it basically comes along with with one of those ideas. Just, I want you to be my savior, enter my heart. I'm turning my life over to you. All of those kinds of things are, can be said in what folks call the sinner's prayer. The interesting thing is, You go through the entire book of Acts, so many conversions, not one single time does Peter ever say, repeat after me, say this prayer, and then people are saved. I think
1: that to to draw that point uh, stronger, uh, if I may, uh, you have a a, a sinner's prayer in Acts 10. Uh, It's not the one that people think of today, uh, like in the back of the Bibles you're describing, but you have Cornelius who, uh, you know, the Lord says, uh, your prayers have been heard, but then there's things that he needs to do. Uh, and so, you know, if there were a case where the sinner's prayer would be uh, the logical place to put it in the scriptures, here you've got a man who is hearing his prayers, but he still needs to hear the gospel, and he needs to respond to the gospel. Well, I'll see your Cornelius and raise you a
2: saw, <laughs> all right Because Saul goes on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to him. Saul immediately realizes this is the Lord, and the Lord sends him into Damascus and says, Somebody's going to come and tell you what to do. But when Ananias gets there, we find out that Saul has actually been praying for three days. He's been fasting for three days. And yet, according to Acts 22 16, Ananias still had to tell Saul, What are you waiting for? Arise be baptized and wash away your sins. Here's a sinner that's been praying for three days. And you know, Ananias doesn't tell him, well, you got the prayer wrong. Ananias doesn't say your sins are taken care of because you prayed. Here he's been praying and fasting for three days. And one of the other concepts, you'll hear the sinner's prayer. One of the other concepts is pray through to salvation. And that is you pray and pray and pray and pray until you get that sense and feeling of salvation. And, I mean, Saul's been praying for three days. He's been fasting and praying for three days and still has to be told by Ananias, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the
0: Lord. Let's not think that Saul's prayer was inadequate. You know, you think about where he was before the Lord appeared to him. He was persecuting the followers of Jesus Christ. No doubt because he didn't believe Jesus was the Christ. And, of course, then he sees Jesus, the risen Lord, and realizes he's been raised from the dead. He must be the Christ. And he comes to realize, I've been opposing the Messiah and, and by persecuting his followers. And, and then in that state, he begins fasting, and he's praying for three days. What would a man who's been persecuting the followers of the Lord, denying that Jesus is the Christ, who suddenly comes to realize he's 180 degrees wrong, what do you think he'd be praying I can't imagine he's praying anything other than, "Lord, please forgive me if there's any way possible. I'm so sorry, I was wrong. Can I be forgiven of this?" Yeah, I
2: think that's exactly the kind of praying he'd be doing. I think he'd probably also be praying, "Show me, show me what what needs to happen."
0: Yeah, and 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 the Lord did that through Ananias, who comes, yes, arrives and be baptized and washes. Calling on, in,
2: in fact, looking in Acts chapter twenty-two. As he's on the road to Damascus in verse 10, he says to the Lord, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed to you to do. I think it's interesting if if we want to see some parallels in language, God tells him to rise and go into the city, and there it will be told what you do. Ananias tells him, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. So uh, God could have told him, rise and go pray, but I, I have no doubt that the prayer is, get this guy here. Three days, he's waiting. Where's, Lord, where's the guy that's going to tell me what I'm supposed to do? Why is this taking so long? I, obviously, I'm speculating as to what Paul or Saul at that time actually prayed. But all of that would be part of it. And it would be an
0: extension of, what do I do? Well, here, here's what somebody's going to say about all this, though. Edwin, Joe, think about this. The Bible teaches we're not saved by works. What you guys are saying is you have to go and get baptized. You have to do a work. And so you're trying to be saved by your works instead of just trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ. So what's the response to that? Why, is it, why isn't it being saved by works if I insist that somebody has to be baptized to be saved? So you were baptized, right? Yes, I was. How did that happen? What happened when you were baptized? Explain it to me. Well, there was a, a, a big thing of water, a baptistry, and, and there was a, a, it was my father, actually, it, 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 and we went down into the water, and he he took my hands and, and laid me back in water and brought me up out of the water, and after having said that, I, he was baptizing me for the remission of my sins in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, or something like that.
2: Yeah, so what did your father do? He baptized you, right? Yes, he did. You, you didn't go baptize yourself. I, I think it's interesting when we look at the very action of baptism, the very action of baptism is an illustration of what's going on spiritually. I don't go do something. I have somebody else do something to me. And Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, explains what's going on there. It says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, And having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. My faith in baptism is not in baptism itself. My faith is not in me who went and got baptized. In fact, my faith is not even in the person who baptized me. My faith is in the powerful working of God, which he says he accomplishes when I have someone baptize me.
0: Why would God do that? Why would he say, I'll do this when you're baptized? Why can't God just do it anyway? Why does he need me to be baptized? God can do whatever he wants. I guess the bigger question is when
2: God explains he's going to do it this way, why would we try to demand that he do it a different way? Uh, God, when the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness and they murmured and complained, and so God sent serpents among them, and they, they cried out, help us. Well, why didn't God just go ahead and heal them and get rid of the snakes? I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Not that I can't make some speculations and maybe write a sermon series that gives my three points a couple of different times. But the reality is when it all comes down, I don't know why God said, make this serpent that you're going to put on the staff. Everybody who looks at that staff will be healed. He could have just healed everybody and got rid of the serpents. Well, perhaps, it is, it
0: is. speculatively,
2: God... Wants a faith-filled response,
0: but Edwin, if you look at it that way, if if the best you got is well, that's just what God said. You know what your your mistake is. You're putting you're not putting your trust in the theology. You're putting your trust in God. That seems like maybe maybe that's a good thing.
2: <laughs> well, I I want to put my trust in God and His Word, not just some kind of system that we've come up with. And that's what I'm always wanting to make sure that what I'm, what I'm believing is his word. I read something one time that I thought was really powerful. Let me throw this out. You guys can knock this down if you want to, but I read a fellow who pointed out that the teaching on baptism is not so much a command, it's a promise. And so when we are baptized, it's not so much that we're obeying a command. We're putting faith in the promise very much like what happened with those fiery serpents. So if if I can build the picture this way, if you had never, ever sinned, let's say you've never, and of course I realize full-time five-point Calvinists would not even allow that idea. You're born a sinner. I, I do not agree that we're born sinners, but just for the sake of argument, let's just say I've never sinned. I'm not a sinner. Do I have to be baptized? Well since Acts 2:38 says baptism is for the remission of sins, I'm going to argue no, I don't. If I've never sinned, baptism is not a command that I have to
0: follow otherwise
2: now I've sinned by not being baptized.
0: Okay. So Brad, I reject. Yeah, go ahead. Somebody's not going to hell because they haven't been baptized. They they're going to hell because they've sinned. Nobody's going to hell because they weren't baptized. Everyone's going to hell because
2: they sinned. That is exactly right. And it is very much like the the serpent's Nobody was going to die because they didn't look at the bronze serpent. Everybody who died was going to die because they were bit by a serpent. If you never got bitten by the serpent, you didn't have to look at the bronze serpent. If you were bitten by the serpent, there was a promise. Look at this bronze serpent and you'll be healed. When people looked at that, they weren't obeying a command per se. They were responding to a promise. They were putting their trust and faith in God and his ability to do what he promised. I think that's exactly what's happening in baptism. When Jesus says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, I have to ask, do I believe Jesus? Am I going to trust him? Am I really going to believe his promise that God really does work in faith-filled baptism? Or do I think it's going to be something else? Now, if I think it's going to be something else, I, I need to find that somewhere. And I've yet to find anything else in Scripture.
1: Maybe <laughs> one more uh, kind of just... Uh, I guess from a simple uh, approach to to Jeff's question a while ago about uh, trusting in in baptism uh, or why baptism, uh, why did God choose baptism? Uh, In the story of Naaman in 2 Kings 5, he rejected the prophet's instructions to wash in the Jordan. Uh, Servants came and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says, Do you wash and be clean? Uh, you know, that seems like a pretty simple and, and direct, uh, approach. If God has said it, then that should be of it. If, if he said wash and be clean, then, then that's what we ought to do. Uh, we've we don't got have it. to, to know the mind of Christ, uh, to know, uh, what
0: he has told us. We don't have to know why he's told us as long as we understand what he has told us. Jonathan Purse makes a comment. He says the same guy, this is one of our viewers, the same guy, Saul, who said, not of works. So just get that in our minds here. Saul becomes the Apostle Paul, and he's the one who emphasizes the fact that we are justified by grace through faith. We're not saved by works in the books of Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and so on. So Jonathan says this same guy, Saul, who said not of works in his epistles as the Apostle Paul, was baptized after hearing the instruction of Ananias this same guy was sent by uh, Ananias was sent by the Lord to tell Saul what he must do. Saul's own conversion slash salvation experience included baptism and Paul's own teaching expected baptism. So whatever interpretation of not of works uh, we have, it must take that into consideration. That's, that's kind of an interesting comment.
2: That not of work statement is found in Ephesians chapter 2, powerful passage, beginning at verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I want to think about that not boasting. It's, it's not of works so that no one may boast. And we, we back up and say, well, what, what boasting is it that God is concerned about? What is it that God wants to make sure we're not doing? Is the boasting God saying, we are not ever allowed to say, I was involved in this. I had any part in this. I did anything with this because if I'm doing that, now I'm boasting. That's not, I think, God's concern. There is a really great story, account, if you will, in Judges chapter 7. Most of us know about it. It's Gideon and the 300 soldiers that faced Midian. It's an amazing story. It's a shocking story. Midian, because Israel has gone away from God again, has conquered and oppressed the Israelites while they're there in their homeland. God calls Gideon to be a judge and deliverer. And now he's got an army, and he has been able to amass an army of 32,000 soldiers. And God says to Gideon, we've got a problem. You have too many soldiers. Can you imagine any general in any war ever saying, our biggest problem in this war is we've got too many soldiers? (laughs) But that was God's estimation. God's estimation was, you have too many soldiers in this army. In Judges chapter 7 and verse 2, he explains why. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. What is it that God is concerned about? God's concerned that when we're done doing something, we're going to say, my hand has saved me. So... He whittles it down to 10,000. They actually followed the law. The law said, any battle you're going into, you need to ask if anybody's afraid. And if they're afraid, send them home. But there were still 10,000 people. And God says that it's still too many. So they come up with that great water test. And I, I think people make a mistake about that test. I've heard people say that, well, the reason he chose the ones who pulled the water up is because they were really, those were really smart soldiers who would look around. That completely misses the point of what God's doing. God's not looking for smart soldiers. God's not looking for good soldiers. He's just looking for the small number of people so he can prove he did the saving. And probably if only 300 had done it the other way, those would have been the ones that had selected. But he got it down to 300 and says, now I'm going to give it to you. He gives them instructions. They had to do something. They had to, they divided up into three troops. They put those torches in those jars and they shouted and they hollered and they broke the jars when Gideon said it was time. When the battle was all said and done, would they be able to say, I went on the battlefield? Yeah, of course they would. Would they be able to say, I smashed my jar just like I was told? Absolutely. Would they be boasting? No. Because when it was all said and done, the only thing they could say is, why did you win? God saved us. Yeah, God yeah. delivered us. And that's what's happening in Ephesians 2. Going back to what Joe said regarding Naaman and the leprosy, why did he, Joe, why did he get so upset when he was told to go dip seven times in the Jordan?
1: He was offended that uh, he expected the prophet to come out and, and do some great show for him.
2: Supposed to do some great show. And remember, the servant comes to him later and says, wait a minute. What If if he had told you to do some amazing and great thing? Yeah. You'd have done that but now because he just said go dip in the water I wonder if there's not some underlying issue for so many of us that well how on earth could it be baptism baptism is so nothing and it becomes this this odd kind of twist if god had said climb mount everest I wonder if people would have gotten so upset about that. If on the day of Pentecost, Peter had said, repent and climb Mount Everest for the remission of your sins. I wonder if people would would balk against that so much. And the reason why I wonder that, I, I know that sounds perhaps unfair on the surface, but the reason I wonder about that is because when I talk to people about this, one of the things that will most commonly be said in response is... I go to church all the time. I read my Bible. I pray. I do this. I do that. I don't do this. I don't do that. Are you saying that as good as I am, I won't be saved just because I didn't get baptized? Which is really putting their trust in their works. Which is exactly what that's doing. There are so many that will argue against baptism. But when you ask, well, why do you really believe you're saved? It's going to be all about their good works. And I'm not saying get baptized and it doesn't matter how you live. That's not biblical teaching either. But let's just be honest about what we really are believing in our heart of hearts. We'll argue against baptism because it's the popular thing to argue against. But far
0: too many people believe they're being saved because they're so good. This idea of boasting and and your story there from Gideon and and the 300 men, one of them boasting after that battle about his great military exploits and how he, by his great uh, ability, defeated the Midianites, maybe would be a little bit akin to me boasting that Uh, I was baptized, so I deserve heaven, because I was able to hold my breath under the water for four (laughs) seconds, and so I am really worthy of heaven. (laughs) Exactly. It sounds silly when you say that, and it is
2: silly for you to say that. My faith is not in what I did, it's in what God did, and it's about the fact that I believed him when he promised, he that believes and is baptized will be saved. I believed him, and so when I believe somebody, I do
1: what they say. And, and isn't it also the, the opposite of, of proud boasting to humbly say, I can't save myself. I need to put myself to death so that God can raise me to a new life. Yeah, yeah I can't save myself. So I just need to do what the one who will save me tells me to.
0: Exactly. So I've got this question for you. One of the statements that we hear in the evangelical world is baptism is just an outward sign of an inward grace. And here's my comment about that and the question, the grace is inward. But what the evangelicals are saying is, in saying it's just an outward sign, they're, they're trying to say it's not necessary. I believe it can be an outward sign, and it can be a necessary outward sign. But my question to you is, is baptism symbolic of anything? Is did God could have chosen any kind of thing he wanted to. He could have said, uh, you know, uh, march around the walls of Jericho and I'll save you. He could have said... Um, you know, break a picture with a lantern in it, like in in the book of Judges there. And and I'll say, he said, be baptized. (coughs) My question is, after I get through coffee, to go back to the word arbitrary or maybe random, is baptism just a random thing God chose? Or is there some symbolic symbolism in baptism that would maybe help us understand why God has chosen this?
2: I, certainly, there's some symbolism. Symbol, symbolism doesn't mean unnecessary, but certainly there's symbolism. That idea of outward sign of inward grace, when that's being said, the, the teaching behind that is, again, a very Calvinistic thing that says, God chose me, and now he has predestined me to go through with this action to show what God has done inside What the Bible teaches is in Romans chapter six, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in newness of life. The symbolism here is is that Jesus died, was buried and then rose again. Baptism is us following in the footsteps of Jesus, dying, being buried, then being raised to walk in a new life. It's a really powerful thing when you think of it in the context of Romans 5. Joe told us earlier that Genesis 11 came uh, right before Genesis 12. That that was about that that was very profound. I I want to follow along with that and point out that Romans 6 comes after Romans (laughs) 5. But in Romans chapter 5, there's all this contrast and comparison between Adam and Jesus. And I know we could spend episodes on top of episodes parsing all that out, what exactly is being said. But if you boil it down, what Paul points out is everyone who follows in Adam's footsteps gets what Adam got. When we follow in Jesus' footsteps, we get what Jesus gives. So when I follow in Adam's footsteps by sinning, as we all have done, I get the death, the condemnation that Adam got. When I follow in Jesus' footsteps, I get the life that he gives. And then in chapter six, he explains how I follow in Jesus' footsteps. I'm supposed to die, be buried so that I can be raised in a new life. And that's exactly what's happening in baptism, which is why baptism is an immersion. It's, it's because it is symbolically demonstrating being buried with Jesus. And I do think there's the other side of that symbolism demonstrated by First Peter chapter 3, uh, excuse me, right, First Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to, a good, to God for a good conscience. Tied in with what Paul had said, or what Ananias had said in Acts 22, 16, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. This is building upon the imagery that we see in the Old Testament where the priests were washed before they entered their sanctified duty. Baptism is a symbolism of a washing. And it's not just the water itself is holy and cleanses us, but it is that symbolic picture. Our sins are being washed away because God is taking care of that, because God is working, not because we're working.
0: A uh, viewer, uh, Irene, going back to your comments in Romans 6, she's saying much the same thing you were saying. Here's what she says. She writes, doesn't Romans 6 show us what baptism represents, kind of like a parable? You all know this. It was this, it, this was the big light bulb moment for me. Now, Edwin is saying, this chapter clearly shows me the way it works. We know what happens with physical death. Baptism is spiritual, putting to death our sinful self, burying that old self, and rising from it in a new person. The wonder of it all is that physical death doesn't have the last step of rising from the dead. That's what Jesus did. We want to follow him, and he does the physical part and in his power. All he asks is to follow him into a spiritual death. The wages of sin is death. The free gift is from God. She says, you all know this, of course, but coming from a denominational background myself, Romans 6 was like the bright light bulb that makes sense, her comment there.
2: So piecing some of that together, I do want to add, I may have misunderstood something that was being said, but I do think we also follow Jesus' footsteps in life. He, He died, was buried, and was resurrected to new life. I die and am buried in baptism, and I am raised with new life. Jesus gives me life. Now, that's not a reference to the physical death and resurrection that will happen at the end. It's it's the fact that in baptism, there is a death. My sin is being put to death.
0: I am being raised to walk in a new life. Yeah, exactly. I may have have read her comment punctuating it incorrectly as I read it there. Anyway, very good, uh, Edwin. Good to have you with us today. appreciate you being able to join us on the webcast. Thank you for the invitation. Always good to see you, Joe.
1: And you too. Uh, Likewise, Jeff.
0: Thanks to our webcast engineer, uh, Noah Andrews, for his work. And thanks to all our viewers and those of you who sent in comments during the webcast. We'll see you next week. Lord willing.